Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus, so that if he found any there who belonged to the way, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. As he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I am Jesus, whom you persecuting, he replied. Now, get up and go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. The men traveling with Saul stood there speechless. They heard the sound, but did not see anyone. Saul got up from the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he could see nothing. So they led him by the hand into Damascus. For three days he was blind and did not eat or drink anything. In Damascus there was a disciple named Ananias. The Lord called to him in a vision, Ananias. Yes, Lord, he answered. The Lord told him, go to the house of Judas on Straight Street and ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul, for he's praying. In a vision, he's seen a man named Ananias come and place his hands on him to restore his sight. Lord, Ananias answered, I've heard many reports about this man and all the harm he's done to your holy people in Jerusalem. And he's come here with authority from the chief priest to arrest all who call on your name. But the Lord said to Ananias, Go, this man is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles and their kings and to the people of Israel. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. Then Ananias went to the house and entered it. Placing his hands on Saul, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord, Jesus, who appeared to you on the road as you were coming here, has sent me so that you may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately, something like scales fell from Saul's eyes and he could see again. He got up and was baptized. And after taking some food, he regained his strength. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. Thank you, David, for reading that so well. And thank you for all the, um, the sharing as well, and the testimonies. And, and it, without realizing it, lots of what was said is relevant to what we're going to talk about this morning, um, particularly about how God speaks to us, how God speaks to us often uh, through a combination of methods, uh, like we've talked about already this morning. So that's something that we're going to reflect on together. But let's, let's just pray again before we get started. Lord God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this word. We thank you that you speak into our lives, that you have been speaking since the very beginning of the universe and you continue to speak. 
And we ask you this morning just to speak to us again. Speak to us in words that only we will understand. Speak to our hearts, speak to our doubts and our fears, our situations. We're listening, Lord. Amen. So, okay, the conversion of Saul. Uh, what a fabulous passage. Um, perhaps, perhaps one of the most significant and well-known moments in the whole of the New Testament. So, you know, thanks, Tim. Uh, no pressure there. Um, a, a fantastic piece of scripture. Um, and we know where this story goes, or you may not. Uh, Saul, who becomes, uh, kind of meets with Jesus on this road to Damascus, um, becomes Paul. And Paul, of course, becomes um, one of the central figures um, in the modern church, responsible for so much of the New Testament, for the letters, uh, for so much of our theology um, comes from the, the mind um, and the, the kind of the pen or the mouth of Paul. Um, so this is a kind of, he's a celebrity, isn't he? A celebrity Christian uh, is Saul. Um, and people still use that phrase in common language, the Damascus Road experience. Have you had a Damascus Road experience? Like it stands for something miraculous and strange and wondrous, which it is, which it is. This is a unique, particular moment for a very, very special person. Absolutely true. And the problem with that is there's a temptation to kind of think, this isn't really for me. It's an amazing story, but what has it got to say to me? I'm not Saul or Paul. I'm ordinary I'm an ordinary human being, and surely this is just a great story about an amazing thing that happened in the past, and it can't speak to me today. I'm going to try and persuade you this morning. There are things here for us. There are things here for us. Yes, this is a special moment for a special person, but there are messages here for you and for me in our ordinary walks, whether we're walking Damascus Road or whether we're walking along Walcott Street. I think there's something here for us too. Because it's tempting to think of Saul like a kind of pantomime villain at this point in the story, this kind of arch nemesis of the Christian church. And if we do that, I think we miss the point. We miss the point about why God chooses him as his chosen instrument. And there is a risk that we start to think of this as fiction rather than history. So, I don't know how you feel. I, I, I think I've shared this to you, with you before. I'm going to share it again. I have a kind of insecurity about my testimony because it's really, really boring. <laughs> um, it's really boring. I've been in those kind of testimony services where people talk about how they were a drug dealer and then everything changed and they saw a light and heard a voice. And, and my own father actually has an incredibly powerful testimony about audibly hearing the voice of Jesus. Um, and there's a part of me that wishes that had happened to me too because somehow it feels kind of you know, more gutsy and, and more authentic. Um, but I want to suggest this morning, actually, that um, dramatic though this is, there is a commonality to the way that Jesus speaks into Saul's life. And I think you will find that he has spoken into your life or is speaking into your life in very similar ways, regardless of whether we're walking a Damascus road or not. So, does the nature... I guess this is the question of how God speaks to us. Say anything about the power of our ministry or the level of our, level of our anointing. You know, is it only people who are spoken to in soul-like ways that go on to do incredible things for God? I'd suggest to you not. 
Just in case you're worried about that this morning, I'd suggest to you not. Um, let's remember that most of the disciples were called with a simple, come and follow me. Oh, you guys are fishing. Come and follow me. Pretty ordinary, actually. Pretty ordinary. Not every disciple, including Peter, needed a dramatic flash of light to hear the voice of the Lord. So that might be an encouragement to you this morning, just in case you think, well, I've never had anything like that. Sometimes the invitation is simple. And actually, praise the Lord that sometimes that's all that's needed to break through. Come and follow me. I'm sure if you asked Saul, he would much prefer that than actually what happened to him um, because it was clearly uh, a distressing uh, series of events. So how are we to respond? Um, So, yes, Saul was special, um, and the fact that Jesus revealed himself to him so dramatically would later serve, actually, to lend him authority as an apostle. He says later that Jesus appeared to me, and that's why I have the same apostolic authority as those that walked with Jesus in the first place. So it does serve a purpose there. Um, But actually, this story isn't really about Saul. It's not really about Saul. It might have the title in your Bible, Saul's Conversion. It's not about Saul. It's about Jesus. It's about Jesus. And I want to think about three things this morning in classic preacher style. Three things about Jesus. I think this passage tells us something about, number one, who Jesus is. That's the first thing I think we learn in this passage. Who Jesus is. Number two, how does Jesus speak to us? I think it's something that we learn here. And number three, what is he asking us to do in response? Who he is how he speaks to us, and what he is asking us to do in response. Are you ready for that? Three-part sermon. Classic. It's so you know when it's coming to an end. It's helpful, isn't it? <laughs> so, first of all, who? Who is Jesus? So you might notice in this story the parallels with another story um, in the Old Testament in Exodus chapter 3. Just let your mind go there for a second. Moses and the burning bush. I don't know if... When I read this story, for some reason, that parallel account came to my mind. And if you haven't thought of that, good, because at least you'll take something away this morning. Uh, don't worry. Uh, Exodus chapter 3, Moses finds himself on unexpected holy ground. Do you remember? He's fled Egypt. He's run away from the mission that he has for him. And suddenly he finds himself on holy ground, meeting with God, away from the temples and the religion and the incense and all the sacrifices and all of that stuff. He finds himself actually meeting with Jesus in the wilderness. Meeting with Jesus in the wilderness. And suddenly he's face to face with the Lord. You remember the story. Uh, God speaks to him with an audible voice through the burning bush. Do you remember the question that Moses asks of the burning bush? What does he ask? His basic question, who are you? Who should I say you are? What's your name? Do you remember the question? Have you noticed it's the same question that Saul asks? Exactly the same. Who are you? Who are you? Who is this God that is speaking to me? And you remember the answer in Exodus. God says, I am who I am. I am. And he goes on to say, this is my name forever, the name you shall call me from generation to generation. Now, as Western Christians, we don't always appreciate how important the name of God is. The name of God for Saul is absolutely fundamental to his entire world view. Absolutely fundamental. It's easy to characterize him as a 
arch-villain who just wants to kill Christians without realizing that for him this is a holy war. He is protecting, or he believes he is protecting, the name of God given to Moses. That's what he thinks he's fighting for. He thinks these Christians, these new people talking about Jesus, are a threat to Yahweh. They're a threat to everything that he believes in. He's a Pharisee. He's a zealot. He loves the Lord. It's weird to think that he might love the Lord and yet condones the stoning of Stephen. But he does. That's where this is coming from. It's about the name. It's about the name. It's about Exodus 3. The name of who God is is fundamental to every decision that Saul makes in his life. He's not a murderous villain. He is a man seeking after God's name. He's a man seeking after God's name. He's an expert in the Torah. He's an expert in the Old Testament. He loves God deeply with all of his being. And it's the name that matters. And that's why I think this moment in the conversion story is so powerful. Because he's blinded by this light. You know, Jesus audibly speaks to him. And it's a face that he doesn't recognize. Hang on a second. Hang on. You're not what I was expecting. I've spent my whole life serving you. I know your scriptures inside out. I know about Moses. I know that you've spoken before. I thought I knew who you were. And yet here you are. And I don't know who you are. And he asks beautifully the same question as Moses. Who are you? What is your name? And notice the response. I am. Same answer. But then the extra bit that's really important. I am Jesus. I am Jesus. That's it. That's the whole gospel right there. <laughs> it's the whole gospel. Boom. Massive revelation. His entire worldview, everything he spent his life studying, suddenly breaks apart with this just jaw-dropping, awestruck moment, this revelation of, wow, all this time I thought I knew who good God was and I didn't have a clue. And now here he is speaking to me, and he is Jesus. You can see why it takes him three days to recover. Three days of fasting and prayer, because his entire life has been blown apart by the voice of the Lord. So Saul finds himself, like Moses, suddenly face to face with the Almighty. Who are you, Lord? Notice that he addresses him as Lord. Have you noticed that? He knows that he is facing the Almighty. There is no doubt there. He knows, but there must be something about that revelation that's different to what he's expecting. There is a face that he is not expecting, just like Moses, who are you, Lord? And it reminds me, actually, of the statement that Jesus makes um, in John 8, where he says, before Abraham was, I am. Do you remember that? Similar claim, I am God, I am Yahweh, I am the creator of the universe. And in that moment, people wanted to stone Jesus for saying that. The point, my, my dear, dear friends, and I know you know this, but I'm going to remind us this morning, the central question for Saul on the Damascus Road in that remarkable meeting is the same question for you and for me this morning. Who is this Jesus? Who is he? 
Who is he to you? Who is this Jesus? It's the fundamental question of all life, is my belief. The fundamental question of all life. It's the same question in Matthew 16 when Jesus says, who do you say I am? He asks his disciples, who do you say I am? It's the fundamental question of life. And I believe that every human being at some point on their Damascus road of life will have to reckon with this question. Who do you say I am? And I also believe, and I think what we learn here in this passage, is that the heart of the unbeliever only has the capacity for change once there's a recognition of who Jesus really is. Even if, like Saul, with all his education, he doesn't understand the answer. He doesn't understand it. Three days, fasting and praying, what's happened to me? I've met Jesus and I've got no idea what that means. For me, I've got no idea what it means about my theology, about my learning, my identity. I don't know what it means for my future. What does it mean for all those people that I help kill? What does that mean? But notice that Jesus doesn't unpack all of those questions on the first day. And if we expect that to happen to us, that suddenly you become a Christian and boom, everything makes sense, then that is foolish. Because life is way more complicated than that. We've got too much baggage to work that all through. In fact, it's a life journey. The Damascus Road is step one on the road. It's not the whole story. It's the beginning. And Paul spends the rest of his life working those questions out, doesn't he? And my goodness, aren't we the beneficiaries of that? Who this Jesus is? I don't think there's room in his theology, in his worldview, in this moment, to really understand who Jesus is. It's so contrary to everything that he's believed. The metaphor is obvious. He's blind. He's blind to the truth of who Jesus is. Notice in verse 8, it says, when he opened his eyes, he could see nothing. <laughs> it's, it's funny. I, I think it's funny. I, it, it works metaphorically so beautifully, so spiritually. Something's happened, but he still doesn't see it all, but he knows something's happened. He knows his life has changed forever. His blindness and the fact that he spends the next three days fasting and praying tell us that he has encountered Jesus, but he has not yet fully understood who Jesus is. And it becomes his central question. So if you just have that question in your heart this morning, even if you're not sure completely the whole of the answer, then you're on the Damascus Road. You're on the Damascus Road. There is no other road to walk. And what I love about the way that Jesus speaks is not just the flashing lights. Have you noticed that it actually takes the simple witness of another for the scales to fall from Paul's eyes? Did you notice that? It's not all about the thunder, guys. Sometimes it's about a conversation. Drawing alongside somebody who's broken and saying, I think you've met with Jesus. More on that later. Secondly, so that was the who. Who? Who Jesus is, the fundamental question of life. The same question for Saul as for us. So secondly, what does this passage tell us, do we think, about how Jesus speaks? How Jesus speaks. Again, it's kind of tempting, isn't it, to kind of say, well, this is a unique moment. Um, there's a reason why Jesus intervenes in history in such a kind of powerful way. It can't possibly have anything to say to me. I've never heard Jesus' voice in the thunder. So it's just special for Saul and not for me. But... 
I'd like us to just keep our minds open this morning that there's words for us in here too about our walk and about our road. Let's notice a few things. Verse 7. So I want to notice that Saul isn't alone. He's traveling in company. He's part of a group. I imagine that the rest of his company kind of are fellow zealots or at least kind of allies in his particular mission against these Christians. So they're not exactly um, kind of open-minded, I don't suppose, to the voice of Jesus. Um, But there's a few things to notice that's interesting. Have you noticed that it's only Saul who can hear and understand the voice of Jesus in this moment? Have you noticed that? It's only Saul. In fact, later in Acts 22, when Paul is reflecting and talking about this experience, he said, and the other guys with me didn't understand. They didn't hear the voice in quite the same way. So they hear something. They're speechless. Something's going on. Something huge is happening. They can feel the spirit at work in the room or the the road, but they don't hear the voice in quite the same way. Why is that? What could that tell us about the way that Jesus speaks? Why doesn't he just speak to all of them? I want to suggest something to you. I want to suggest this morning that God chooses the times and places when he reveals himself to us. God chooses the times and places. And it's right that we come on a Sunday and we expect to hear God, but God chooses the time and places when he reveals himself to us. And the second thing is that when God reveals himself to us, it's personal. It's personal. It's a personal, individual revelation. Now, whether you came to faith or not, but whether, if you're a person of faith, whether you came to faith on your own in a room as part of a massive tent gathering alongside 20,000 people, it's irrelevant. The voice of God speaks to us personally. It is an intimate exchange. It's, just, it's not just a kind of adoption of a faith system. It is a relational, intimate exchange. Jesus speaks into our lives personally. And he does so here with Saul. His voice in this moment is for Saul. It's for Saul. The rest know that something's going on, but in this moment, it's Saul. Notice he says, Saul, Saul. Have you noticed that at the beginning? Saul, Saul, I'm speaking to you and you only. This message is for you. We've recently celebrated Pentecost. You'll remember that the kind of key miracle that happens as soon as the Holy Spirit comes is that all the disciples of the apostles start to speak in different languages. Why? So that people can hear the voice of the Spirit in their own language. It's personal. It's personal. It's personal for Saul. It was personal for the apostles. It's personal for you and for me. It's personal. You know, in Saul's case, you can see it. He's so blind to the identity of Jesus. He's so anti. He's so wrapped up in his own mind and theology. You can see why Jesus is like, I'm going to stop this guy in his tracks. He needs a dramatic change because he is so going in the wrong direction that he needs a dramatic change. So my kind of mundane testimony, I should rejoice that I was the beneficiary of a Christian upbringing because I was already on the road I didn't need a kind of handbrake turn uh, in the way that Saul did. And thank God for that. And thank you to my parents for that. It's personal. So 
I like to think about the confluence of events. We, we talk a lot about the, the bright lights. And I've mentioned already that the, the, the witness of Ananias is important here too. Um, and this morning we were talking about these kind of God incidences. We thought about that song and then we changed our mind and it was a confirmation of something that you ha- had experienced. And, and God still works this way. In fact, I like to think that the stoning of Stephen is the thing that gets this going. If you kind of go back a chapter, you'll remember that Luke particularly mentions that Saul was there. And how does Stephen die? He dies by seeing the face of God and Jesus and, and seeing Jesus at the moment of his death. And Saul saw that. He saw a man who was being stoned to death and yet dies seeing the face of Jesus. Dying peacefully, lovingly, looking just like Jesus, in fact. Imagine what's going through Saul's mind as he travels that Damascus road. It's a kind of four or five day journey. Yeah, he's got his letters and he's set out with a mission. He's going to round up these Christians. But I like to imagine that there's something about the face of Stephen that's bothering him. It's my imagination. He can't quite get it out of his mind. He's primed. You know, Darren Brown used to be quite popular and he used to talk about priming a lot. Do you know who Darren Brown is? The kind of, I don't know how you feel about Darren Brown. Maybe I shouldn't talk about Darren Brown in church. But the point is he uses lots of psychological tricks to prime human minds to pick certain cards out of the deck. You know, that's how a lot of magic works. It's priming. It's priming the human brain to receive a message or to make a particular choice. And I like to think that Saul is well primed as he travels this Damascus road with the face of Stephen haunting him. What is it with these guys? How come no matter how much I persecute them, they keep going? I don't think it's just the blinding light, I think is my point. Jesus speaks to us in a complex tapestry of language, of witness, of experience, of tragedy, of joy. Sometimes it's a voice. Sometimes it's an historical event. Sometimes it's something that happens to a close friend or a loved one. Sometimes it's something that happens to you. And at the time, you don't know what Jesus is saying. Do you imagine for a moment that Stephen or the friends of Stephen see his death as anything other than a tragedy? The loss of a great servant? Stephen was amazing. Do you think for a moment they thought ahead and say, don't worry, this is going to lead to Paul. This is going to lead to the majority of the New Testament. Do you see the the point? Jesus is sovereign over us. He has plans to prosper. Another scripture that you talked about this morning, that he works all things to our good. And we don't always see that, do we? But he speaks to us through the darkness as well as the light, through the silence and the thunder. And it is the blend of his voice that ultimately reaches in here. So let's not think of this blinding light as a one-off moment. It's part of a single message. And I just wonder whether this morning your own story is really so different from Saul's. For those of us who believe, can you pinpoint now, in retrospect, in retrospect, the moments when the Holy Spirit prepared the way in your heart? Can you think of those moments? So that when the time came and Jesus spoke in a, in a voice, your heart was ready to hear. It was a plan all along. It was a plan all along. 
And when Jesus spoke to you, did he do so in language and circumstances that seemed deeply personal to you, to your story, your pains and your joys and your talents and your gifts and your sufferings and your hopes and your fears? Did he speak to you? Because I believe that's the way that Jesus speaks to all of us. It's not just for special people like Saul. It's all of us. He is the expert surgeon who slices to the center of the heart. Slices to the center of the heart. And he speaks to us so precisely because he knows us so deeply, each one of us. So as we walk the Damascus Road this morning, and I don't know where you are on that road, but wherever you are on that road, as we walk, let us be bold enough to ask, Jesus, speak directly into my life in only the way that you know how. Finally, last thing, coming into land, as people tend to say these days. What does this passage say about what we're supposed to do as a response to Jesus' voice? So this is where Ananias becomes a starring player. Ananias, this is the only time he's in the whole of the Bible, Ananias. He's a total kind of minor character. He's like an extra in a movie who has a single line and then disappears and you forget him. Ananias. But wow, what a contribution. <laughs> what a contribution. Had it not been for Ananias, we wouldn't have Paul. Had it not been for Ananias, we wouldn't have Paul. And there's a message there for for those of you who feel that sometimes you're a bit part player in the work of the kingdom. <laughs> if you feel like, oh well, you know, I don't do very much. I'm not one of those people who've got all those gifts. Sometimes doing that one thing changes everything. But sometimes the simplest of actions have the greatest impacts, far beyond our vision or expectations. See, sometimes we worry that our job is to do the heavy lifting for the Spirit, to, to save people and to do all the work. And uh, actually, Jesus, the Holy Spirit, yes, uses us, but he has his own plans, he has his own purposes, he has his own way of speaking. And sometimes the role of the Christian, uh, like Ananias, is just to come alongside someone and just confirm, yeah, that was Jesus. <laughs> that thing that happened, that was Jesus. Sometimes that's enough. That's all Ananias does. He just says, yeah, it was Jesus who met you on the road. Boom. That's all he had to say. Done. But let's not forget that Ananias is called to do exactly the thing that he really, really, really does not want to do. He is rightly terrified to obey God in this moment. Everyone Every kind of new follower of the way, any Jesus follower in the city of Damascus would know who Saul is, why he's coming, that he has the authority to arrest them and put them to death. They all know that. They will have heard it on the grapevine. I imagine that lots of Christians would have fled. Saul's coming. We've got four or five day notice. Let's get out of Damascus. Why is Ananias still there? What's it? Why is he still there? It's interesting, isn't it? Why is he still there? We're not told. Again, my imagination takes over. But why is he still there? Maybe there's just something in his gut that says, no, I'm not going to... I feel like I need to be here. I, don't, I can't tell you why, but I feel like I need to be here. 
It's interesting, isn't it? And then the instruction comes. You know that guy that's coming with his team who has the power and authority to put you to death, arrest you, drag you back to Jerusalem, probably to be crucified or stoned? You know that guy? The guy who is so zealous and anti-Christian that you can't imagine anything other that he will reject and despise you and persecute you the moment he sees you. Go and speak to that guy. <laughs> Whoa. Go and run into the fire is what Jesus says to Ananias. And kind of Jonah-like, but not, he's nowhere near like Jonah, actually. He's, he's kind of a lot less rebellious than Jonah. But he kind of says, really? <laughs> God, uh, really? Go to Saul? The guy who's persecuting Christians all over the region. He is terrified. But he does strike me as a Christian who's blessed with the gift of what we might call discernment. He doesn't say no. He just checks. Am I hearing you right, Lord? Because that's a bit crazy. He doesn't say, no way, or I'm not listening. He says, really, Lord? Is that really what you meant? Did I hear you right? It's a gift. It's okay sometimes just to check the things that we think we hear from the Lord and just to wait on it and pray and meditate. And what I love is the fact that God explains his plan. I love that. There's a joke in the film Incredibles where they talk about the, the, I know it's kind of the villain, but you'll see where I'm going with this, kind of monologuing, you know, and they're kind of, you get the bad guy monologuing and kind of saying, aha, I have an evil plan and this is what's going to happen. Um, it's kind of part of the joke of the story. Um, but what I love here is that the Lord takes the time with Ananias to explain his plan. I love that. What, what, what grace. He doesn't say, I am the Lord and you will do what I'm telling you. He says, no, let me explain my rationale. Let me explain my rationale. It's so gracious. He knows what he's asking of Ananias. Of course he does. He knows how he feels. And he says, look, I know it seems strange, but this Saul, he's my chosen instrument. I've got a plan, Ananias. There's a reason. And it makes total sense. I mean, shocker, God's a genius. Who better to construct a Gentile-friendly Judeo-Christian theology than someone who's steeped in both Greek and Hebraic culture and language. He is the perfect instrument for what needs to happen next. Of course he is. In fact, his experience and his persecution of Christians is almost a necessary condition of the ministry that's to come. He doesn't get to be Paul unless he's walked the walk that he's been doing. God knows exactly what he's doing. Jesus has picked him out. He has the qualities that the Lord needs to take this mission one step further because the other disciples probably haven't got it in terms of taking it beyond Jerusalem and the surrounding area. But Paul's got it. He's got what the Lord needs. And sometimes we have to accept that actually that God has a plan and sometimes he chooses to use people that we wouldn't necessarily choose. He's the perfect candidate. So it's easy for us in hindsight to see the brilliance of God's plan. But for Ananias in that moment, this command seems like madness. And sometimes that's true for us in our lives too, isn't it? Really? You want me to do what? That makes no sense. And we have to have the humility to say, but you know what you're doing. You're sovereign. And to Ananias' great credit, he obeys. He does as he's told. And I know I'm running a bit long, but just notice a couple of things. Verse 17, look how he greets him. Have you noticed? 
Brother Saul. Have you noticed that? Brother Saul. He believes and realizes what's happened before Saul does. Do you see his faith? He greets this Saul, this murderous Saul, and in his opening greeting, he says, Brother Saul, you're already there, and I can see it. What faith, what discernment for Ananias. His name, by the way, is derived from the name Hananiah, which means the Lord is gracious. (laughs) He is the perfect instrument for this task. It's wonderful. And notice that Ananias doesn't claim any particular role in the miraculous recovery. He doesn't say, I'm here to heal you. He doesn't say that. He says, Jesus has sent me so that you may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. He gets that his job is messenger. He gets it. That's what I'm here for. And you might have noticed the parallels between Ananias' authority and Saul's authority with the letter from the high priest. It's almost as if God is saying, I'll show you what true authority looks like. Um, And that's something that we're all given and called to. So this is the what that we're called to do, I believe, in our lives, to respond to the word of Jesus. He's sovereign over us. He's sovereign over our lives. He has plans to prosper. And so our job is to listen and to respond and to trust, to trust that sometimes Jesus asks us to do something And we don't get it, but to trust and do it anyway. To be an instrument in his larger symphony. To play our part, even if we don't see how it all blends together. That is what we're called to do. So as we draw to a conclusion this morning, it strikes me that although this is a Damascus Road experience, in many ways it's typical to the day-to-day life of being a Christian and the way that Jesus moves in our lives and speaks to us. That's not to say that we should expect every day to see blinding lights or to hear audible voices from heaven. You know, far from it, but equally we shouldn't be disappointed if that doesn't happen. It's far better for us, I think, to hear the quiet voice than the dramatic voice. And the common thread is that Jesus is sovereign. He's in control. He chooses the times and the places to reveal himself to us. The Lord Jesus, the Lord of the universe, wants to speak to us this morning in words that only you will understand. Are we ready to listen? Are we ready to listen? And are we ready to do?